Let's pray. Our Father, we're just so thankful that you have given us every word of Scripture, and that begins with, in the beginning, you created the heavens and the earth, and all the way to the end with, even so, Lord, come quickly. Father, we pray that you will bless our study of your word every time we open it. May your word, this living word, take hold of us, guide us, illuminate us, And help us to see what it would be to be faithful to you in this life as we await the life to come. We pray this in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. So in this priestly prayer of Jesus, this high priestly prayer as it's often referred to, Jesus is acting as he acts now as our intercessor and great high priest. This is the son praying on behalf of us. And so even as the prayer begins with Jesus talking about the glory that he had with the Father before the creation of the world, the entire purpose of the prayer is that he's praying for his people. And so just the existence of the prayer gives us the great good news that our Savior cares for us, loves us, prays for us. There's this incredible distinction, and it's a very clear distinction between the church and the world. And so Jesus actually speaks to the Father explicitly saying, I am praying for those you have given me. I'm not praying for the world. And the phrase, you have given me, comes up repeatedly as here we see this incredible testimony to the sovereignty of God, uh, to not only the doctrine of election, but also to the doctrine of perseverance and assurance. Because as, as we have been given to the Son by the Father, No one can separate us. And that, that again, is just a a wonderful, wonderful uh, assurance and encouragement to us because if we have given ourselves to the Son, we can fail. But if we are given to the Son by the Father, then we actually are secure. But as we have been making our way through this prayer and now in our fourth time together, we look at the verses in which we see, as we saw when we were together last, where in verse 10, Jesus says, all mine are yours and yours are mine and I am glorified in them and I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world and I am coming to you, Holy Father. Keep them in your name, which you have given me, that, may be, that they may be one even as we are one. While I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I guarded them, and not one of them has been lost, except the son of destruction, that the scripture might be fulfilled. But now I am coming to you, and these things I speak in the world, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them, because they are not of this world, just as I am not of this world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake I consecrate myself, that they may also be sanctified in truth. Now sometimes in this prayer, as in other passages of Scripture, we make our way word by word, phrase by phrase, and yet when we think we see a phrase and understand its placement, we get a little further in the passage and understand, okay, that phrase has come up again. Or or that phrase has now been addressed from a different angle or aspect. 
I need to go back and understand what's really going on here. We went back to verse 10 and began reading from there. Because again, we have this incredible emphasis from Jesus that he is going to the Father, but he is leaving his children in this world, in the world. Well, this turns out to be a bigger theme in this prayer than we might fully have recognized. So, remember that Jesus was saying that he is anticipating after the cross and resurrection, returning to be with the Father and receiving again, knowing again, the glory that he had with the Father before the creation of the world. And and then he makes this statement, just as he made to the disciples, but now he's speaking to the Father, he says, uh, I am no longer in the world, because he's, he's looking in anticipation to that moment. But his believers are left in the world. Now remember the very last verse of chapter 16, what Jesus said. Jesus said, I have said these things to you that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. In the world you will have tribulation, and some of you remember translations such as, in the world you will have trouble, and that is certainly true. In the world you will have trouble. So why are we in the world? Well, I guess you could state just a matter of fact, which is had Jesus taken the disciples out of the world and the end of the age then immediately inaugurated, we would not be here and we would not be anywhere. One of the questions is why Christ has left his people in the world. Now, we talked about that to some extent, but Jesus says the world's full of trouble. And by the way, that's why he's praying for us. We're no match for the world, to be honest. We aren't. In ourselves, we're no match for the world at all. The world would not only give us trouble, the world will smash us and arrest us and persecute us and scatter us and, and uh, silence us. The, the world is so powerful in the grip of sin that it would extinguish the gospel except for the fact that Christ will not let it be so. And so when Christ said, upon this rock I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it, He didn't say, you look really strong to me. He just said, I'm not going to let you perish. Uh, And of course, that has an ultimate sense. He's not going to let the gospel be extinguished. He's not going to let the church uh, itself be destroyed or extinguished. But then again, if this is such a difficult place, why are we here? Well, one thing to understand is that we're here because We are the witness. We are the light of the gospel in the world. It's the body of Christ. We are left in the world. There is work for the church to do. And that's a very important thing to recognize. We are not here merely to wait. There is a waiting, but we are not here merely to wait. As you look at the New Testament, there's much assigned to us. We have the the Great Commission, and Jesus himself will make reference in this passage to what he has given the disciples to do. And uh, this is repeated First of all, it's the theme of the New Testament in in the sense of the Gospels and the assignment to the Apostles, but you have the Great Commission as you find it at the end of the Gospel of Matthew, and you have the Great Commission as we will find it uh, there in Acts chapter 1. You will be my witnesses, first in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and then the uttermost parts of the world. There is witnessing for us to do. There's work for us to do. You come to the book of James written to the early church, and you'll remember that we are told that true religion 
is to take care of widows and orphans. There's work for us to do. There is work being salt and light. You take the letters of Peter in the New Testament, assignments to represent Christ, to live peaceably, uh, or at least to seek to live peaceably among all, but uh, very clearly by our conduct in the world to bear testimony to the gospel of Jesus Christ. You have the Apostle Paul, you have an explicit missionary mandate. How shall they hear unless they have a preacher? And uh, blessed are the feet of those who take the gospel. And so you, you put together the New Testament, there's a, there's a theology of suffering. We are in the world, and a part of our assignment is to suffer. And from time to time, the church has suffered horribly beyond our imagination. That too is witness, which is why the word martyrdom is actually taken from the same word as witness. That's what martyrdom is. It is the ultimate witness. But when you think about uh, Jesus here speaking of his own in the world, there's a remarkable statement, and we saw it before, but I want to go back to it for a moment. All mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I am glorified in them. And I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world. Jesus says that in verses 10 and 11. So, you'll notice when you look at verse 15, Jesus says, I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. Now, that's a pretty astounding sentence, because uh, actually we're going to encounter it again. Jesus says, I do not ask that you take them out of the world. So, we are not left here by the Father's purpose we are actually left here by the Father's purpose and the assignment of the Son. It's just one of those phrases where you think, well, again, we have this intimate gift of a conversation, a prayer between the Son and the Father in this most, this most urgent of moments in the life and ministry of Jesus. And he makes clear what he is asking the Father to do, but he also makes clear what he's not asking the Father to do. He's not asking us to take us out of the world. Now, as you think about that, I want you to think about another text, and that would be 1 Corinthians chapter 5. 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 9 and 10. Now, in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, what's going on? Well, Paul is writing to the church admonishing the church at Corinth in which horrible sin had been found in the church and that, and that sin was, was hindering the gospel witness of the church. Things are found amongst you, he said, that aren't even found amongst the Gentiles and he mentioned quite specifically some sexual sin. He goes on to say that in the church we are to have nothing to do with a Christian who acts in such a way. We're not to extend a hand to fellowship. We are not to allow them in our homes. And, and again, the key is he's speaking about someone who had been in the church, who had been identified in the church. And he said, you, can't, you cannot act as if they are Christians. That's the whole point. You can't treat someone who is living in renunciation of the faith as if he's a Christian. You can't give him the fellowship you'd extend to a Christian, but you really can't have any, anything to do with him. But here's what's fascinating in verses 9 and 10. Jesus, uh, this is Paul. Paul said, I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people, not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world 
or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters, since then you would need to go out of the world. So there you have Paul echoing Jesus. Are we in the world? Yes. Uh, we are in the world by assignment. And does, the G- does Jesus pray that we be taken out of the world? No, he doesn't. He, doesn't. he explicitly does not pray that we would be taken out of the world, but that we'd be left in the world. And the Apostle Paul, speaking of the church having to deal excruciatingly with sin in its midst, he says, look, I'm telling you, you can't have fellowship with someone who claims to be a believer and acts in this way, but I'm not telling you to have nothing to do with sinners out in the world, because if I told you that, you just have to leave the world. I find that very, very interesting. To be in the world is to be in contact with those who are worldlings. To be in the world means we're living in a world in which, yes, all around us there are adulterers and and the immoral, and cheaters, and backbiters, and, and all the rest. That's pretty much what the world is like. If, if you can't handle that world, you've got to leave it. Um, we're not allowed to leave it. We've got to bear witness to the gospel, be salt and light in the midst of a world that is marked by all these things. And this is not an accident. We weren't left behind. We are here for a purpose, and that purpose is work, that purpose is witness, that purpose is to glorify God in this age until such time that it is right, according to the Father, that this age should end and the kingdom of Christ should begin in fullness. I think we just need to admit there are times in which we're ready to be taken out of the world. A part of this is the struggle of the church understanding our own responsibility for holiness. And so just as you think about the the church and the world, we're in the world, we're not the world. I used to hear it said we're in the world, but we're not of the world. And that's actually a summary of, of the high priestly prayer's logic. That language, in the world, but not of the world, is a, a summary of the very prayer that we are reading. But it's not just that we are not of the world, it's, it's that we are not the world. So there's a distinction in identity between the church and the world. You also have in this passage the theme of unity, and we've arrived at that theme. And this is a precious theme. And, and that theme is the fact that the distinction between the church and the world is to be one of holiness and yet the church is to be marked by a unity so he prays that we'll be one even as he and the father are one and it comes fairly early in the prayer as a theme but it becomes very clear in the passages the verses that we just read He prays that we will be one. He also prays that we will be consecrated in the truth. What does it mean that Christ prays that we will be one? What what kind of one are we to be? 
When you think of unity in the church, there have been several attempts to try to create an institutional unity. There are actually several different models of unity in the church. The first most obvious model in church history would be Catholicism. And uh, by that, I don't yet even mean a capital C. Uh, the, the, the C becomes a capital C. But as you look even in the, uh, or the early centuries of the church, the unity was institutional. And very quickly, that unity took the shape of bishops, and the bishops uh, were under the unity of the, the primus, or the, or the prime bishop, who was the bishop of Rome. So over time, this becomes more and more institutionalized, and uh, so much so that in the early centuries of the church, the church is defined not by the presence of Christians, but by the presence of the bishop. Where the bishop is, there is the church. So you have this institutional unity, and of course, that becomes absolutely crucial and, and is, un is unquestioned, I mean, through, let's just say, a millennium. Let's, let's just kind of fast forward to the 5th century and then take it to the 15th century. For, for that millennium of time, the church is considered to be one thing. Now, that gets a little complicated uh, when in 1050, in the 11th century, there's a breach between the East and the West. And, and so the one thing Catholic means universal. It means everywhere. And, and so that institutional unity is fractured when you have the Eastern Church that goes off under the uh, patriarch. But still, in the West, in Western civilization, in, the, 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 in Western Europe, and uh, that, is, that is Europe primarily, as it is culturally defined, the church is just one thing. Rome is the headquarters of the church. And so now we have Catholicism with a capital C. And, of course, then comes the Reformation in the 16th century. And uh, in, in terms of the history of the West, it's hard to come up with a more decisive event than that because up until that time, it was not just the unity of the church that was absolute and structural. It was the, it was the union of crown and altar. So it was not just the unity of the church. It was the union between the church and the monarchy in uh, whatever respective realm and so they were, they were increasingly seen as sharing a common authority. The Reformation breaks all of that, but sort of. The Reformation broke the uh, structural unity of the church, and now you have church in plural, and that, that was unthinkable. And as a matter of fact, even uh, for quite a long time after the Reformation, on various sides, you did not have any recognition of churches. You, you, instead, it's still just church and, uh, you know, there's not time to trace all of this, but very early uh, in most of Europe, uh, given the conflict that included the Thirty Years' War, which just minute for minute was probably the deadliest war ever fought on European territory, the, the, the basic concept came down to the fact that the religion of the state is the religion of the ruler. So if you had a Catholic prince, you had a Catholic church. If you had a Lutheran prince, you had a Lutheran church. Uh, not acceptable to Baptists, because that doesn't even work. It's, it's historically anachronistic, so don't worry about it, but it wouldn't have worked to have a Baptist king, and uh, there weren't any really, and, and then to have you know, a Baptist church in, in the realm. And, and so it took centuries after that for the idea, and Robert Wilkin, I had the privilege of doing a thinking in public program uh, with him, he said, 
you know, the, the language change came much later than people would imagine where people would speak of one realm with a plural word, churches. A place to look for that, by the way, would be someplace like Prussia where you had a very strong Catholic presence, very strong Lutheran presence, very strong reform presence, and eventually just to keep peace and to have a national identity larger than what would have been a Catholic state or a Lutheran state or a reform state, you end up with speaking of the churches. Institutional unity doesn't work. Let me just put it that way. It, 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 it doesn't work. And it, even as you look at Catholicism, I mean, right now in Catholicism, you have the German bishops at war theologically with the Vatican. The German bishops are going ahead with plans to uh, have a sacrament or a form of blessing for same-sex unions. The German bishops are moving in radically liberal directions. And so they're looking at schism in the uh, Roman Catholic Church because the, the German bishops even this week said, we're not turning back, and the Vatican said a definitive no. So it's going to be interesting to watch those developments in the Roman Catholic Church. So even the Roman Catholic Church, as it exists now, is not unified, except supposedly organizationally under the Pope. Well, on the other side of the Reformation, there have been efforts to create something of an ecumenical church. And so the ecumenical movement and ecuming, you know, the economy of pulling everybody together, this, uh, this common and unity in one the, the ecumenical movement especially took root in the late 19th and early 20th centuries. And the, the late 19th century, you have communications, you have transportation, you have trains, you've got all kinds of things developing to the extent that you've got people moving all over the place. And you have to realize that's a part of what really came out of all this. You have people moving all over the place. So you used to have Catholic communities, Catholics lived there. And you had Lutheran communities, Lutherans lived there. But once you have people moving all over the place, well, then you've got, you've got all kinds of people everywhere and uh, by the way, you look at a map of the United States, you got Scandinavian churches all over the Great Lakes, and uh, you've got uh, Congregationalists and Anglicans you know, in the Northeast, you have patterns of Catholic immigration that come into cities like Boston and uh, New York, and then later cities like Chicago, and so you've got Polish and Lithuanian and Irish, big Irish immigration, and a lot of German immigration, and the city of Louisville is very interesting. You know, you got the patterns of both early Irish and then later German Catholic immigration and uh, moving here, which even explains some of our neighborhoods and explains two Catholic boys' schools. Uh, so, you know, it's not as unified as it looks, but once you have, once you have all these, these churches in a city of Louisville, I don't, know, I don't know how many there are, and so the claim was, we just need to create out of this one church. And so originally, that was basically just a Protestant issue, and the Catholics were watching with interest. So let's just get the Protestant churches together. We're supposed to be one. Okay, just the, the quick thing to speak of here is the fact that, number one, not everybody bought into the ecumenical idea in the first place put Baptists at the top of that list. We're Congregationalists. Uh, and furthermore, we weren't looking to, we're not joiners. Baptists are horrible joiners for this kind of thing, for theological reasons. But the reason, first of all, that this won't work is that the only way to make this happen is with some kind of lowest common denominator theology. And so the ecumenical movement quickly moved into theological liberalism every time it started. Every major effort towards an ecumenical unity 
that led to theological liberalism, to a theological minimalism, and, and then they just kept dumping doctrines overboard because we've got to stand in common, we've got to have a common statement. And so you have the World Council of Churches, the National Council of Churches of Christ, as it was known in the United States, and uh, Southern Baptists just we, theologically could have nothing to do with that. By the way, you hear almost nothing of that now because the churches that did become a part of the like World Council of Churches, are now so weak and uh, empty, you know, hardly anyone even thinks of them or speaks of them. So it turns out that an institutional unity really doesn't work. It turns out that an ecumenical experiment really doesn't work. But the, Christ, the Church of Christ is to be one, so in what sense are we one? Well, this is where Baptists would argue, and this is really a traditional evangelical argument, that it's in doctrine and it is in spirit. It is a spiritual unity, and it is a doctrinal unity. Let me go back just a minute, by the way, and say one other model of unity that some have tried is liturgical unity, where people have argued that the actual center of unity in the church is the fact that we have, for instance, the Lord's Supper. But then again, just ask the churches to describe the Lord's Supper, and you understand that doesn't work either. Is it a mass? Is it a Eucharist? Is it a sacrament? Is it an ordinance? So the liturgical unity... But that was an early effort, and people thought, well, you know, if it's a liturgical unity, it might be that the Eastern Orthodox could join in, if not the Roman Catholics. Well, I'm not going to go further there. I'm going to say where the unity is. The unity is spiritual, and it is doctrinal. The, and let's say doctrinal first. So the evidence of that is that Jesus gets right there in John 17, 17. Jesus says, sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, I have sent them into the world. And for their sake, I consecrated myself that they also may be sanctified in truth. So it's sanctification in the truth. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. So it turns out that our unity is truth, and that, that, that is what doctrine is. Doctrine is what the church believes, confesses, and teaches on the basis of the Word of God. That uh, definition comes from Yaroslav Pelikan, a great historian of doctrine who taught at Yale for many years, and it's worth it just to be able to say his name, Yaroslav Pelikan. Uh, he was a, a Titanic scholar and uh, one of the greatest historians of, of, uh, of history and historians of history, what sense does that make? He was one of the best, the most important historians of theology and doctrine and dogma. And he actually was an historian of the history of theology. But nonetheless, he defined doctrine in the beginning of his great five-volume history in the history of doctrine as what the church believes, confesses, and teaches on the basis of the Word of God. Why three words? Believes, confesses, teaches. Believes is what actually resides as the conceptual, convictional belief of the church. And, uh, and as Pelican understood, that's found in theology books, that's found in creeds, uh, but hold that thought. It's uh, very importantly found in hymn books, and it's apparent in prayer. And so if you want to know what the church believes... In fact, Roger Scruton, the, last, the uh, late British philosopher, great loss to us when he died last year, 
Roger Scruton said, if you want to know what people believe, do not ask them doctrinal questions, but rather listen to them pray. It's a keen insight. He was at that point an unbelieving philosopher. What the church believes. Then what the church confesses. And yes, that is the creeds and confessions. So where the church says, this is what we believe, well, okay, listen to the church. It's telling you what the church believes. So whether it's the Apostles' Creed or, uh, or our Baptist faith and message, or when we as a congregation have a members meeting and we share the covenant together, we're saying this is what we believe. So Pelican would say, listen to them. They're telling you what, what they believe, what the church believes, confesses, and teaches. You know, what, where, where do we teach? Well, that's the preaching. What's actually preached? I was reading a, a great scholar of the Reformation just a few days ago, and he said, if you had just known nothing of Luther, and you'd known nothing of Calvin, and you'd known nothing of any kind of theological controversy, if you went out of Germany in, say, 1520, and came back in 1570, you would be hearing preaching so different, you would know something had happened. So the, the preaching makes a difference. Luther was turning out preachers, and having turned out all these preachers, went into the pulpit, they were preaching the word. It was a completely different event. The church in, in Germany, under the power of the Reformation, had been turned for what Luther said had been an eye house into a mouth house. You no longer come in to see things, you come in to hear things. You no longer come in the church to watch priests, even behind a screen, performing a mass. No, you're not there to watch anymore. You're there to hear. It's a, it's a moot house. It's a, it's a mouth house. So we look to what the church believes, confesses, and teaches on the basis of the Word of God. But the Word there becomes so important because actually that's what Jesus says. Sanctify them in the truth. Your Word is truth. Now, is he referring to Scripture here? The answer is yes. Clearly he's referring to Scripture here because Scripture is included in God's Word. But when Jesus speaks of sanctifying believers in the truth, your Word is truth, that includes, by His own designation, everything that He has said. And that's also been in this prayer. I gave them your Word. Or just earlier, just verses earlier, I gave them your Word. It's one of the great identifying marks of the church. Where's the church? Well, it's where Christ is. Where's the church? Well, it's where the Word is. Now, remember, in the institutional unity model, where's the church is where the bishop is. That's not the way we answer the question. Where's the church? Well, number one, where are the Christians? Where's the gospel? Where's the Word? This is also why the Reformers, in talking about the, the marks of the church, uh, identified the first two marks in, in the summary often attributed to Luther it's where the Word of God is rightly preached and the sacraments, we'll say, the ordinances rightly administered. The first thing is where the Word is rightly preached. And as Luther said, if the Word is not rightly preached there, I don't care what it calls itself. I don't care its architecture. I don't care if it has a bishop. If it has a bishop, it becomes less likely. I care what's preached. And so that's the unity of the church. That's the truth that is the deposit at the center of the church. And here's the thing. Jesus doesn't just say, Teach them, thy word is truth. He says, sanctify them. So here's the other revolutionary reality that jumps out at us from this prayer. 
Doctrine is sanctifying. God's truth is sanctifying. The scripture is sanctifying. That's, a, that's a, an amazing thing. We, we are to be holy. As God himself said, as I am holy, you be holy. It's picked up by Peter in the New Testament. We're to be holy. We're to be the holy ones. We're to be Christ's holy people. We're to be holy in a sinful world. How are we going to be holy? How are we made holy? Well, the answer, according to Scripture, is by the indwelling Spirit and by the power of the Word. That's how we are made holy. There are disciplines of holiness, yes, but the the source of holiness is truth. And so, by the way, this means means something, and that is that, that, that holiness has to begin in truth, and as truth works its way out, speaking of gospel truth, Christ's truth, as the truth works its way out in our lives, it produces holiness. This is a warning to us, lest we try to find some other means of holiness. That's also been a temptation throughout the history of the church. We want some kind of instantaneous holiness. Uh, We want some kind of declaration of holiness. By the way, there is an instantaneous declaration of holiness, which is once we are united to Christ, we are His. Christ is not united to sin. So, in, in, in other words, our eternal holiness is guaranteed and secure because we are united to Christ. But there is nonetheless in this life, and certainly is revealed in Scripture, a continuous testimony to the need for us to reveal holiness, to display holiness, to be holy, to grow in holiness, and that's going to come only by the Word. Your Word is truth. Sanctify them in the truth. There are no other means of holiness. Now, this leads us to some interesting, interesting observations. So, for instance, one of the issues that puzzled Christians, and I would say they were Christians evidently who would be easily puzzled, but one of the issues that confused many Christians was with the encounter of world religions in the 19th century in particular, came even earlier in terms of exploration, but primarily the 19th century is when people were thinking about this. There was even a parliament of world religions held in Chicago in the 1890s. It was kind of like, you know, here's one of those, here's one of those, here's one of those, here's one of those. But what confused many confusable Christians, let me put it that way, what confused many confusable Christians were the holy men of other religions. So I was just going through life yesterday and uh, happened to see a news story where there was someone talking about having met with the Dalai Lama. And the Dalai Lama right now is, whether you recognize it or not, at the white-hot center of international geopolitics. I don't know that he really meant to be there, but he is there because the official, and I can't go into this as much as I would like, as fascinating as it is, but the Communist Party in China, which of course uh, uh, has cracked down on uh, Nepal and uh, upon the followers of the Dalai Lama, and is officially atheistic, and I mean absolutely officially atheistic, it nonetheless claims now to be in control of the reincarnation of the Dalai Lama. So you have an atheist regime explicitly declaring legal rights to control the reincarnation 
of a priesthood. If you're a communist, you've got to control everything, even the things you don't think exist, evidently. And it is because it's very political, as you could imagine, and all the rest. But why am I raising this now? It is because Westerners have no idea what to do with the Dalai Lama. I mean, he's, he's, uh, he's a very holy man, according to worldly definitions of holiness. He's, uh, he's an ascetic. You know, he is uh, deeply meditative. He is, uh, and he's called holy because, after all, he is the reincarnation of the Dalai Lama, according to tradition. And, well, you know, it just, it, I'm saying all this because I can understand why the particular Buddhism that he represents would consider him holy. I don't, cons- let me put it this way. This is the kind of holiness that Hollywood types are looking for. He looks the part. And uh, so whether you're the British royal family or, you know, even American politicians of a certain stripe or Hollywood celebrities, you want to go and see, you know, an audience with the Dalai Lama or, or, or to bring it closer to us, the Pope. One of his titles is Your Holiness. This, le- this leads to all kinds of issues for uh, Protestants when we are in a Catholic territory. It's because people just don't know what to say to us. You know, uh, you, 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 basically it. Uh, there's, not, there's not much you can say. Uh, you can't say your eminence. You can't say as, uh, as to a bishop, your excellency. Uh, you can't say your holiness. All you can say is, you, um, that, that's where we are. But people look at the Pope and, uh, you know, they want to just touch him. You know, they can just touch him. Holiness will, will come to them. He's the most holy of all because it, that's, even, that's even his title. And so, you know, if we can just get an audience with the Pope, if we can just go to a mass where the Pope is presiding, then, then holiness will come. And by the way, he acts as if he is, of course, even, you know, with indulgences and all the rest, still very much alive in the Roman Catholic Church and all the rest. And you look at that and we we'll go, that, that, that's a model of visible holiness. Visible holiness in that sense isn't holiness at all according to Scripture. And then this is where these issues get so confused. And I think even in many muddled minds of evangelicals, all of this is confused. And this is why I have, you know, evangelicals will ask me, well, how do you explain someone like the Dalai Lama who is so holy? And I say, well, just... I just just want to back up for a moment and say, we only have one definition of holiness, and that is corresponding to the one true and living God. So are we clear about that? We're not talking about asceticism. We're not talking about meditative capacity. We're not talking about sitting on top of a stone or a column in the middle of the desert. We're talking about what holiness is, which is really clarifying and simplifying for Christians. All holiness means is corresponding to the attribute of, of the one and only holy God. And how do we do that? Only by his truth. That's the only way we can do it. So here's the radical statement we actually believe. There are nice people apart from the gospel. There are no holy people apart from the gospel. I know that sounds radical, but here we are, John chapter 17. Here we are, John chapter 17, verse 17. And and as we look at this passage, there are no holy ones apart from God. There are Creatures, human creatures, made God's image to reflect his glory. And some of them are very nice. I'd rather be around the nice ones. Some of them are very peaceable. I'd rather be around the peaceable ones. 
Uh, some of the people in the world are very honest. I'd rather be around the honest ones. But holiness pertains to God alone and to that which he makes holy. Look to the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, even in the tabernacle and later in the temple, instruments, vessels were to be made. And what happened? They were made, and after they were made, God sanctified them. He's the only one who can sanctify them. And, and, and that meant not only making holy, but reserving unto himself for his own purposes. And that's the other meaning, by the way, that applies to us as, his, as the saints, those who belong to God. We're made holy by him, and we are his instruments. That's it. Is now, we're, we are like the vessels in the temple in that sense. We are now his, and, uh, and because he's holy, we're to be holy. The point here is that there is no holiness apart from the one true and living God. There is no way to the one true and living God but through Jesus Christ whom he has sent. And there is no means of holiness other than Scripture. So that clarifies things enormously. Where do you find holy people? Those who belong to God through Christ made holy by the word of God. That's it. That's church, by the way. That's what we're here for. We're, we're, here, we're here to be made holy. And, uh, you know, that, that, that's kind of a tough promise because... You guys don't look a whole lot holier than you did last Sunday. And uh, I look in the mirror, I don't think I look a whole lot holier than I did last Sunday. And this is God's work. And, and we have to pray that over time we do see that. We have to pray that over time God sees that. But, but we understand that we're not talking about a class of people. You know, we don't, we, we, don't, we don't reserve the balcony for the most holy. Those of us who sit up there like altitude. Uh, not... Holiness. We, we, we don't have any, any special category. We don't have orders of holiness. Uh, we're stuck together. We have the body of Christ. That, by the way, goes back to our church covenant. Our church covenant says we are covenanting to live together and to worship together in such a way that we encourage one another unto holiness and seek to grow holy together. And that takes time. And by the way, we'll be finished in this life. In all this, just in, what, 17 verses of this prayer, already all this, already just even this morning we've looked at Christ speaking of the unity of the church and we've asked the question, how in the world does that unity exist and, and what kind of unity should we look for? And we're looking for a theological unity, we're looking for a spiritual unity. And that spiritual unity means that wherever we find those who are united to Christ, there is unity with them. And uh, so that means every true believer in the Lord Jesus Christ is our brother or sister. But we're not members of the same congregation. Uh, some of my best friends in the world are Presbyterian. And we can preach the gospel together, but we can't do congregation together. Just the issue of baptism, just take one issue. And, and so... If we were forced at the point of a gun to some kind of unity, what would it be? Believer's baptism by immersion, or would it be the baptism of infants as covenant children by sprinkling? What, what, what would it be? Well, if, unless you're convinced together by the word of one thing, then that, wouldn't even, that would be a false unity. We're just put in the same room and you know, Baptisterian. That, that, that just doesn't work. By the way, I was asked by a high school student at an event this week uh, as to whether or not denominations, the existence of denominations, is a scandal. 
to the unity of the body of Christ. And I said, well, in some sense, yes, but the scandal is not the existence of the denominations, but the existence of the disagreement. That's the scandal. The scandal is Presbyterians are wrong. Uh, don't even talk about the Methodists. Uh, no, no, seriously. In other words, yes, there is an embarrassment before the world, isn't there? There's an embarrassment before the world that we haven't figured everything out to absolute unity among gospel Christians. And I'm just saying, among gospel Christians, we haven't figured everything out. Uh, I often quote Sidney Mead, the American church historian, because he wrote this in a paragraph, and it made more sense to me as a seminary student 40-plus years ago than I... It's just one paragraph. And he said, look, it's, it's basically a mathematical formula. Religious liberty plus doctrinal conviction equals denomination. That's it. Uh, so if, if, if you have doctrinal disagreements and you have religious liberty, then you start churches that fit your convictions. And that's a, that if, without religious liberty, it might be very different. But since you have religious liberty, you can do it. And I thought, well, that's it. It is a mathematical equation. Whether you put, it doesn't matter which one you put first. You know, the difference in doctrine plus religious liberty equals denomination. So is that a scandal? Well, it's an embarrassment, I'll admit. A little bit of an embarrassment before the world. When I go on the television or I'm talking to the press and they say, well, what about the other and the other, the other? It gets complicated, but I'd, I'd rather it be simple. And that simple would mean everybody's a Baptist. So, but it's not going to happen, apparently. So is that an embarrassment? Let me tell you what would be a greater embarrassment. We deny the truth in order to act like we agree. That'd be a far greater embarrassment. Uh, or we, we, we create some kind of artificial unity that we know isn't real. That's, uh, that's more of an embarrassment. But coming to where we end this part of the prayer, and we'll have an interruption with the Resurrection Sunday coming, but as we look to this section of the prayer and where we end, the two words that are put together are two words that Christians need increasingly and urgently to put together. Sanctify truth. Why? Because his word is truth. Let's pray. Father, you've given us such glorious wealth just in these verses. And Father, I am struck by how much we would lose in necessary knowledge for our existence as Christians if we did not have this prayer. So, Father, thank you for sharing it with us. And there is more yet to share. And in anticipation of that, we pray that the Holy Spirit will apply what we now know and have read and have studied to our hearts to conform us to the image of Christ. And if you give us breath and life, we shall pray for yet more. We pray this in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen.